If you would, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Please stand as I'll read this morning's text. Verses 12 and 13. Jesus is standing in the water, having been baptized by John. Comes up out of the water. Heavens open up. Spirit descends upon him. Voice from heaven says, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Jesus, the most important person that's ever set foot on this earth, uh, has come to rescue fallen humanity. To reverse the curses of a sin-corrupted universe. You know, in Christ, according to God's sovereign grace, the Lord came to us, a people who were spiritually dead, replacing a heart of stone with a heart of flesh. It's, it's kind of like the, the, the sun-dried bones in Ezekiel's vision, where God said in Ezekiel 37, Son of man, can these bones live? To which Ezekiel answered, Lord God, only you know. Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, And will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, having put his very spirit within us, we're told that in Christ we are a new creation. We're new creatures in Christ. The old is past, the new has come. We are forgiven. We're declared free of all blame. That's what it is to be justified, declared free from all blame. Romans 5.1 tells us, and since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That is, we're justified, sanctified, and as sure as glorified. In, in those two short verses, you three, see those three aspects of salvation, past, present, future. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Guaranteed for all who are in Christ. And yet, even as Christians... There is a part of us that is yet unredeemed. Again, there is yet a part of us that is unredeemed. And that part of us, Scripture calls our flesh. That is our unredeemed humanness. And out of that unredeemed part of us, 
we are bombarded with a regular flow of temptations. We're like a flowing river. There is a steady current of solicitations to sin. An ever-present reality for everyone who's in Christ. I think the reason we find the wilderness temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ so fascinating is because of that reality. We're constantly bombarded with temptation. And here we see Christ encounter Satan in all of his fury to demonstrate his power over Satan and over sin. This is something we're all too familiar with in our daily lives. Amen? From the left, from the right, and in the middle. Amen. So here is Mark's account. Notice he remains true to his style. He he records the account with captivating brevity. He doesn't cover the details that, that Mark and Luke do as regards this temptation. We're going to briefly touch on them uh, because I hopefully don't want, I don't want to spoil Mark's intentional brevity of this account. But we will have to look at it because this is packed with truth that teaches us two things. The first is the nature and purpose of our Lord Jesus Christ as regards this temptation, first and foremost. And then secondly, it teaches, about, teaches us about temptation itself and how we can overcome it in our own lives. So we'll look at those two things this morning. Now remember the scene is uh, the Lord's baptism. This is his coronation as king from heaven. Jesus, the Christ, son of God, the royal anointed one, has come from heaven. This, his public inauguration, is Messiah. He enters the scene in loneliness and humility, to the banks of the Jordan River where John the baptizer is out there preaching to Israel, repent and be baptized. And here Jesus stands where sinners should stand. John's been up there preaching for months. Jesus shows up about six months later, standing where sinners should stand. receiving what the unfaithful sons of Israel are to receive, and that is a baptism of repentance. So he's publicly identifying with sinners as he stands in the water with John. He's saying, I too, I will identify with this. I too will identify with these people. Here he stands. And then his water baptism launched him into his public ministry And this baptism will find its fulfillment in a baptism of blood on a Roman cross. Jesus makes mention of that in Mark 10. He said to John and James, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of which I'm baptized? What's that cup? It's the cup of God's wrath. What's that baptism? The baptism of God's judgment. 
That's where he's going. So here, the Lamb of God, here, the mediator, the servant of the Lord, God's one and only Son, is being inaugurated here into public ministry that will take him to his death on the cross. Now, we looked at the dramatic dimension last time of this event by way of, of its verbal and visual connection. Okay, so let's just briefly look at that again. Verse 10, notice, immediately, he comes out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, ripped open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So there's the visual and there's the verbal, both, both events echoing Old Testament prophecy. They're fulfilled here in the Jordan. Isaiah 64, 1, rip open the heavens and come down to us, Lord, says Isaiah. Isaiah 42 talks about my spirit upon my servant, the one in whom I delight in. And here the father says, you're my son, I'm, you I'm well pleased. The spirit descends upon the Lord Jesus Christ like a dove or in the manner of a dove, that is gently, comes upon the Savior. You know, before we're given access to God by way of the temple curtain torn, ripped apart from top to bottom at the death of Christ, we're shown first here God's access to us. The heavens are ripped open. The Son of Man, the Son of God descends, and then while he's baptized, we see the barriers of eternal heavens torn open, and I have no idea what that looked like. But we do know this, Isaiah's hope, Old Testament hope, is fulfilled. God enters our midst, and he is on the loose in the person of Jesus Christ. Baptized here in the Jordan at 30 years of age. Interesting to note, we don't want to miss this. When Israel's priests reached the age of 30, according to the book of Numbers, the very age Jesus is here, they went through a ceremonial washing, a a, consecration, to be set apart, having been called into service. And here's Jesus. Also in the Old Testament, we read when a prophet, priest, or king was inaugurated into their appointed office, uh, we're told that the Spirit comes upon them in power. Here's Jesus. The Spirit has come upon him in power. And he is prophet, priest, and king. He fulfills all Old Testament offices the Son of God. So the Father says, you are my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Spirit descends, settles upon him, empowers him. So the incarnate Son of God is now granted divine authority. And though we had to break in the text these two scenes, his baptism and then his being driven out into the wilderness, there is no break in the scene. Okay? Okay? Notice verse 12. Notice the direction of the Spirit now. From the water to the wilderness. Verse 12, the Spirit immediately, okay, there's Mark's favorite word again, immediately, immediately drove him into the wilderness. Now, drove him is a very strong word. It means to cast or to throw out. He's driven, he's thrust into desolation, and humiliation, thrust out by the Spirit. This is not the Spirit forcing Jesus against his will or want. The Holy Spirit 
just anointed him with power and is now in full control of his ministry. Jesus now, the second person of the Godhead, will be led by the third. Now, Jesus isn't being cast out here or driven out into the wilderness so as to be tried and tested behind the scenes to see whether or not Jesus is up for the mission. No, he's being driven out, not to cut his teeth so as to become streetwise in how to deal with Satan for the next three years of his ministry. He's being driven out into the wilderness, expelled, if you will, into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. Not at the end of 40 days, the entire 40 days by Satan himself. So after God the Father sets his seal of approval upon him, here in the presence of the Father at the Jordan, you see Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they're all there and accounted for. Father speaks, Son's in the water, Spirit descends. Spirit now drives him out into the wilderness. And this isn't rolling hills, grassy knolls, green forests, babbling brooks. This is the desert. He's expelled. You know, we see this language in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve are expelled or or driven out of the Garden of Eden. They're driven out of God's presence. That's the idea. Driven out of God's presence. Remember on the Day of Atonement for Israel, for Old Covenant Israel, the high priest would lay his hands on the head of a goat and drive it out into the wilderness, out of the presence of God. After Israel was sent into exile, In Isaiah 64, it describes Jerusalem as a desolation, as a wilderness, as ruins. Here's Jesus, beloved of the Father, expelled, driven out into this parched land. See, this is the sin-ridden world in which God's Son came to redeem. The sin-cursed world. And he's not here as a tourist. He didn't come as a tourist. He didn't come as a spectator. But here here now, he he is driven out into combat. Combat with the world's phony ruler. Okay, did you get that? The world's phony ruler to be tempted. This is a test that Adam, Adam and Eve failed. God's firstborn son, Israel, is, uh, um, is Exodus 4.22. God's firstborn son, Israel, failed as they were tried and tested for 40 years. And here we see a correlation between 40 years and 40 days. God's true Israelite. God's one true son. God's beloved son. True Israel. The mighty one, as John put it. Old Testament language for the Lord himself. The mighty one. He will, he will redeem Israel's unfaithful, disloyal sonship. That's what he's about to do. So the Spirit's descent here represents God's new Israel that will be created through the Holy Spirit. Here he is. He's driven out into the wilderness to face the ambush of temptation from Satan himself. Notice, verse 13. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Here's Satan. He's the adversary. He's the liar, the murderer, the accuser, slanderer. 40 days. 
You know, this is the one who at one time was majestic and beautiful, powerful, an angelic, created being. Okay, he's a creature. He's created. He's a fallen, powerful angel. And he's going to tempt our Savior. Now, we've all been tempted, amen? It's very unlikely, however, that anyone in this room has ever been tempted directly by Satan himself. Okay? Remember this. Satan is, is not omnipresent. Right? He can be at one place at one time. That's it. Now, he has his minions, many demonic forces and so on, none of whom we need to fear. We're just called to stand and resist. So for 40 days, Jesus is being tempted, right? Now, think, remember this now. It, it wasn't three temptations that came at the end of the 40 days. But those temptations are representative of what he faced for 40 days. Okay, it says 40 days. You know, we read about three temptations in, in Matthew and, and uh, Luke. Just let me read them briefly. Uh, Matthew 4, you see it also in Luke 4. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, or it can be translated this, since you are. Okay, don't miss that. Since you are. Satan knew who he was. Since you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Then the devil took him to the holy city, some type of supernatural deal here because he's in the wilderness, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, if you're the son of God, since you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And then again, he said, took him to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Bend the knee. Stones to bread, jumping off the temple. Take for yourself the kingdoms of the world. Just, just give a, just, just a slight bow. Acknowledge me. Acknowledge my power. Bow down. Since you're the son of God, you're hungry. You're the son of God. You don't deserve this. Turn these stones to bread. You are the anointed one. And since you are the anointed one, now Satan affirms that, you're the royal anointed one. You shouldn't have to suffer like this. Turn these stones to bread. Since you are the son of God, all the kingdoms of the world, they can be yours now. Okay, however, I'll give them to you. I give them to whom I will because Luke 4 says they've been what? They've been delivered up to me. The phony ruler. They've been delivered up to me. I give them to who I want. Who, who was given dominion originally? The first Adam. Dominion over the whole earth. They've been delivered up to me. See, the fact that, that Satan offers Christ the kingdoms of the world indicate his knowledge of why Jesus came. All the kingdoms of the world will be his, the incarnate son of God's, that is. But they will come God's way, not Satan's way. Jesus was the rightful heir of the kingdoms of the world. Satan knew that. He had the right to the kingdoms. He was promised that. The Old Testament speaks of that. 
Satan knew the word. So the temptation for Jesus here isn't to give up his rights or his royalty or his honor as the incarnate son. The temptation was for him to forego his humiliation. He'll receive the kingdoms, but only by way of the cross. The temptation of Satan is for Jesus not to bow in humiliation to the Father, but to forego it and to receive it now. They've been delivered to me, Luke 4. Bow down, they're yours. Satan wanted to keep him from the cross because the cross was the necessary sacrifice to atone for sins and for him to become victorious over sin and death and then receive kingdoms of the earth. When Jesus raised from the dead, before he ascended, he said to his disciples, most assuredly I say to you, all power and authority has been given to me in heaven above and earth below. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. They're his. But it would only come by way of suffering. Remember what Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, look at it. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is, look, this conflict of, of, is of cosmic proportions, beloved. Satan himself in the wilderness. Now, Mark is pointing out as the author, he's pointing out for us what he will clarify in the rest of his gospel. And that is mainly that Jesus is reversing the curses of the fall. He's reversing the curses of the fall. And here, after he wins this victory, he'll go right out and begin his first miracle in Mark's gospel is the casting out of demons by the word. Be gone. We see that as soon as verses 23 to 26. So we see the conflict and the outcome every single time time. And then by chapter 3, the religious hypocrites come around and they think it's all a hoax. And they actually think it's the prince of demons, right? Satan himself, who's behind all this. But Jesus is is, is in the process of binding Satan. Remember what he said in chapter 3. Look at that, verse 27. He says this to the Pharisees. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong men. Then indeed he may plunder his house. You see, that plundering commences right here in the desert. Right here in the wilderness where the Spirit drives him into. Out of God's presence in the Jordan, into the wilderness. And there he was, verse 13, with wild animals. Now only Mark makes that strange statement. And it's probably to, to accentuate the fact of his isolation and loneliness. This is an uninhabitable land, a very dangerous place. You know, the Old Testament speaks of the Judean wilderness as having in it, listen to this, lions, wolves, wild boar, foxes, jackals, panthers, hyenas, fiery serpents, and scorpions. You want to go camping? <laughs> want to sleep under the stars? Out there, here's our Lord. And then we see, and angels were ministering to him. You know, Matthew 4.11 tells us that after the temptations, Satan departed and the angels ministered. And that, that word for minister also means to serve food. 
So it's very likely that they fed him after 40 days of fasting. Something that God did for Elijah, right? And perhaps they shut the mouths of the wild beasts like lions as, as the uh, angel did for Daniel. He shut the lion's mouth in the lion's den in Daniel 6. And another aspect of the angels being here is to confirm the father's approval of his son passing the test. Here they are, ministering to him. You know, behind all the rebellion of man, beloved, concerning Jesus, all the animosity, all the unbelief concerning Jesus lies in the reality of this supernatural conflict. And where did it begin? We have to know our Bibles. Genesis 3. Genesis 3. See, none of this is going to make sense unless we see all the connecting points. In Genesis 3, when Adam failed the test, and they were expelled, they're about ready to be expelled from the garden, right? The Lord said this to Satan, to the dragon, to the liar, to the deceiver. I will put enmity... You want to know where the hostility comes from? You want to know where the enmity comes from? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. It starts right there. And then the entire Old Testament is the outworking of that episode. What you read right there in Genesis 3.15, the whole Old Testament is the outworking of that reality which explains the antagonism towards the work of God and all the temptations of men throughout and then beyond. Beyond to this day. How do we know that? Revelation 12. Go to the back of the book. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Okay, so the sun, the moon, the 11 stars, bowing down. Remember the 12 suns? 12 tribes, nation of Israel. She, the nation of Israel, was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. So here you have the Old Testament saints who are collectively in view there including Mary, the mother of Jesus. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That means he came, he lived, he died, he rose, and he ascended. The dragon was there at the knees of the woman, if you will, the nation of Israel, to receive this son so as to try to crush him. You move down, you see a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went to make war on the rest of her what? Offspring. To this very day. On those who keep the commandments of God, and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. So shore, land, and sea encompasses the whole world. 
That's the reality of the enmity. This is a cosmic battle. Christ won, okay? Are we clear on that? Christ won. So that supernatural conflict that I just read underlies all under conflicts, all other conflicts addressed here in Christ's encounter with, with Satan. Commences right here. Going back to the garden, we see the reality of it with Jesus being tempted by him here. And there it is. It's the war. You know, in Genesis 1, where was Adam? In Genesis 1, in paradise, in the garden, having dominion over all the animals. This scene is just the opposite. Here's Jesus, the last Adam, in the wilderness, experiencing the antagonism of it all. The all what? The enmity between the woman and the dragon. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that God in Jesus is the last Adam. He's the second man who here is in the wilderness, redeeming what was lost in the first Adam. Beautiful, isn't it? So the first garden becomes a wilderness, if you will, because of Adam. Jesus comes and victoriously conquers Satan as the last Adam, guaranteeing one day a new heaven and a new earth. A garden better than the first because of Christ, the God-man. So because of this victory here in the wilderness, it will lead to his victory of atoning death on the cross. Crushing Satan, crushing sin, defeating death as a man who came to redeem what was lost in the first man, Adam. The victorious, sinless son and last Adam. We see it right here. Amazing? Are you amazed? I'm amazed. I've read that thing hundreds and hundreds of times, and I'm still amazed. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. But James 1.13 says this, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Okay, that, that says God is untemptable. Okay, was Jesus God? Okay, well, here it says he was tempted. God can't be tempted. However, in his humanity, he was tempted in every way. Okay? It's his humanity that's tempted. Now, although Christ was fully God, and and, and he was and he is, as God, he could not sin. This talks about the peccability and impeccability of Jesus. You know, he's God. God doesn't change. But as a man, he did change because he grew in wisdom and stature in favor of God and man. So as man, he did change. As God, he can't change. As God, he couldn't be tempted. But as a man, he could be tempted. So how did he overcome the temptation? Okay, well, what he did not do, as Sinclair Ferguson puts it, there wasn't a thin veneer between his deity and humanity, a little wall that he punched through so as to pull from his deity to overcome Satan and temptation. He was fully dependent on the leading of the Spirit in his humanity to overcome temptation. Okay? Bruce Ware, in his book entitled The Man Christ Jesus, 
which is a work on the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ, that is, his divinity and humanity meshed together, hypostatic union, he said this, quote, For every temptation Jesus faced, he fought and resisted fully and totally apart from any use of or appeal to his intrinsic divine nature. He utilized all of the resources given him in his humanity. He loved and meditated on God's word, prayed to his father, trusted in the wisdom and rightness of his father, of his father's will and his father's word. And very significantly, he relied on the supernatural power of the Spirit to strengthen him to do all he was called upon to do. Now, isn't it clear, says Ware, to any of us who think about the sin of our own lives, that one of the reasons we give in to temptation is that the pressure is off and the battle is ended once we give in. End quote. Jesus never gave in. There was always the pressure of temptation, not just 40 days, his entire life, and he never gave in. For you. He didn't dip from his deity. He lended himself to the spirit who led him into the wilderness his entire life to resist in his humanity. We think about torture of a human body. Who suffers more? The one who gives in or the one who endures it to the end, to the very end, to death? Obviously, the one who endures unto death suffers the most. We give in. Oftentimes, Jesus never gave in, never relented. He's facing Satan. It's amazing. So Hebrews 4.15, in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, is an understatement, to say the least. So there then, temptation, as regards the nature and purpose of Christ, being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Next lesson is for us. In facing temptation that grows out of Christ's temptation. Now, temptation for us is reality. I don't think I have to drive that home, do I? Temptation is a reality. Every single day, every moment of every day, it's a reality. And as real as it is, it's never an excuse for us to relent. Just throw up our hands and say, oh, I'm going to be tempted, might as well give in, right? No, it's not. You know, the main temptation of Satan and his minions is to lure us away from a life centered around God, from a life centered on God. That's the lure. That started in Eden, the lie of the enemy. What did he say? Has God really said? Huh? Has he really said? And he twists it and he manipulates it. We're going to be tempted away from living God's way to, to, to seek out and live for and to ourselves. That's the temptation. It's ongoing. And that leads to separation from God. And I'm not talking about our union, but what? Communion, fellowship. Your union can't be broken if you're in Christ, but we can definitely break communion with him. And that's the temptation. And the result is, when we do in an unrepentant fashion, we break communion with Christ. We see alienation in relationships. 
personal difficulty in our own lives. You know, all you have to do is read the newspaper or turn on the evening news and see the devastation of Satan's phony rule. It's a phony rule. He's the phony ruler. The kingdoms of the world are Christ's. The blindness has been lifted. The gospel's going out and has been going out to all nations, to the four corners of the earth, amen? That's why there's Christians around the world because of this victory. Okay, so as somebody turns the air conditioner on, please. Let's look at seven truths for our consideration to wrap up our time. First thing is very simple. Behind all temptation is Satan himself. Behind all temptation is Satan himself. Yes, he has his minions, but this has been the reality from Genesis 3 onward. You know, when Paul wrote the church of Thessalonica, he said this, 1 Thessalonians 3, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. For fear that somehow the tempter, who's the tempter? Satan. Had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. In other words, all that we poured into you. I I, I feared that the tempter would come and tempt you away and all our labor of pouring into you would be in vain. That's the first thing. Very simple. Satan's behind it all. Secondly, he has a variety of tools at his disposal. And one of them is circumstances. Beware of your circumstances. Amen? Now, we've all been in certain situations where we have been minding our own business, and all of a sudden, boom, temptation. Just going about your day, right? You think of Achan. Remember Achan? Joshua 7. He's going about his business. He's going through the city and said this in Joshua 7, 21. I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak of Shin- from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, and I coveted them, and I took them, and I hid them in my tent. I was minding my own business, and wow, there it was, a lure to my eyes, or I was lured in by my eyes, tempted, so circumstances became the bait for his temptation. Circumstances. King David, 2 Samuel 11, it happened late one afternoon. Notice, late one afternoon, David was getting up off his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. We all know the rest of that story, amen? His circumstances created the opportunity for temptation. Thing that we have to be aware of. Satan's behind it. Circumstances can lead to temptation. What were Jesus' circumstances? Well, in one account, after fasting 40 days, you're pretty hungry, right? Like unto death. And the tempter came to him. And Satan tried to capitalize on the present situation. That's his typical MO. That's how he normally operates. Your circumstance, the situation at hand. So we have to be on guard, amen? We have to be on guard. This is what we learn. This is what we take out of this. Because we're not Jesus. We have the Spirit, though, amen? Yes, we do. Number three. People. People can be a source of temptation. In Genesis 39, there's the, the, the obvious situation there with Potiphar's wife. 
cast her eyes on Joseph. He was good looking. He had a nice face and a nice body and she recognized it and she said, lie with me, right? Satan throws out temptation that comes through another person or persons. So we have to beware. Look at Proverbs 1.10. My son, if sinners entice you, don't give in to them. Easier said than done sometimes, amen? Especially when you're young, young people. When your friends say, hey guys, let's go here, let's do this. And you know what's contrary to the will of God? Don't go. Don't go. Because you're enabled not to go. God will give you the strength not to go. Proverbs 16, 29, a man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. Not good. And what does Paul say? 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts what? Good morals. So people can be used. So be on guard, friends, against circumstances, against people. You know, some people come into churches and attempt to sow seeds of discord. Beware. Take heed. Don't fall prey, but pray. Don't fall P-R-E-Y, but P-R-A-Y. Number four, another form of temptation is the perversion of Scripture. And it's many peddlers in our day. Did you notice what Satan did here in Matthew 6? Notice. If you're the son of God, or since you're the son of God, look, throw yourself down off the temple mount, okay? Throw yourself down. I mean, it is written after all. The Bible does say he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone, citing, misquoting Psalm 91. There's all kinds of guys on the TV. I talked to somebody before service. He said, man, I just got this dish network thing and I'm checking out I wanted to hear some preaching before I went to bed and he said most of it is a bunch of hirelings peddling a bunch of nonsense they twist scripture the health wealth and prosperity gospel just sow your seed sow your thousand dollar seed and the other day I saw sow your seed of 173 dollars are you kidding me Positive confession. Your words become reality. That's nonsense. And people fall for it. Hook, line, and sinker. There's another form of temptation. Twisting God's word. It's the most infuriating. Number five. It's the temptation of our own lust. We don't have to go too far, do we? Just look in the mirror when you get home. You don't have to go far. It's the cravings of our fallenness, crying out to be satisfied. This is my biggest battle. This is my biggest struggle. James 1, each person is tempted when he's lured away and enticed. Here you have a fishing term. Here you have a hunting term. Lured away, trapped by his own desire, and then when desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. You know, each one of us has a very unique set of cravings to which we are susceptible. That is our own lusts, whatever they be. 
See, Jesus, don't miss this. Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, but his temptations originated outside of him, not from within. That's the difference. There were no temptations within him. There was no inner sinful craving inside his soul. Jesus said this. He'll say in Mark 7, notice verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. Where do do your evil thoughts come from? From inside of you. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus said it's not what goes into a man, it's what comes out. It's not what you eat and don't drink and drink and don't eat or whatever was his point to the hypocrites of his day. It's within you. Number six, we learn that all temptations are common to man. Common. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you. That's not what? Common to man. Common. It doesn't mean everyone experiences the same temptation, right? He doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean everyone who experiences the same temptation as as you do gives in to the temptation. What he's saying here, he's telling us no temptation that you will face is unique to you. Others have been through it. Others have been through it. It's not just you. So if you ever fall into a pity party and go, woe is me, you don't know what I've been through in this life. Look, someone else has been through it too. Right? And we want to minister to one another lovingly. Some people know what it's like to lose a son. I pray I never will. So I'm not going to say to them, I know how you feel. Right? Don't do that. Just remain quiet and be there and minister because you don't know how they feel. But he's not the only one that's gone through it, is the point. Other people have lost their sons. And in addition to that, verse 13, chapter 10, 1 Corinthians, God is faithful, notice, and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He'll always leave the way of escape. So you'll always be tempted, okay? You'll never be without temptation, ever. Not until you go home to be with the Lord. You'll always be tempted. I will always be tempted. And yet, in this life, as though I'll always be tempted, there's also always the way of escape. And kids, well, even adults, sometimes it means running. (laughs) Running the other way, okay? Have you ever just run from something? It's temptation. It's burning hot, man. Burning hot. And you just got to flee. Just me? (laughs) Run, baby, run. Run, Forrest, run. (laughs) But there's times, man, I've stepped right into the trap. Misery. Miserable. Luke 4.13 tells us, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. He wasn't done yet. With our Lord, Satan wasn't done with Jesus. Temptation isn't done with you. 
You know, spiritual maturity, friends, don't miss this. Spiritual maturity is not the absence of temptation. You're always going to be tempted. Maturity is growing to say no to temptation that you will always face. Always. Even if it's the same, what if it's the same temptation 100 times a day? Then it's the same temptation 100 times a day. It doesn't mean you're immature because you have the same temptation 100 times a day. The maturity comes as we learn and we grow by God's grace and the power of the Spirit to resist it and run from it if we have to. Amen? That's maturity. You're always going to be tempted. Number seven, final point. Temptation's not sin. Temptation's not sin. Some people think temptation is sin, so they just give into it. And say, well, since I'm tempted, what the, might as well just be, be. Jesus said if I commit adultery with my eyes, you have already committed adultery, so why not just go for it? You're a fool. It's not the same. Now, in the judgment scale of God, it's the same. Conse- you know, the consequences here, it's not the same. Right? Jesus was tempted repeatedly. By Satan. Jesus was tempted by his disciples. Lord, far be it from you to go to the cross. How did Jesus answer Peter? Get behind me, Satan, because who was behind that? Satan. God's way and God's will for the Son of Man was to be crucified and slaughtered. To be baptized in blood on the cross so you and I could be set free. And he was tempted all along the way. The Pharisees tempted him. Matthew twenty two eighteen. 18, Jesus said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Putting me to the test. So having been tempted in every way and never sinning, who is he? He is Jesus, the Christ, Son of the living God, God's only way to himself. So let me say this. If you're here, and you have some vague idea about God, or you have some crazy idea that there's other ways to God than Jesus Christ and Him crucified alone, today is the day for you to repent of that nonsense. That means you change your ways of thinking, you change your whole, whole ideals about God, and you can't create God little g in your own mind, because when you create God in your mind, that means He's under your control. He's not under your control. Come to Christ. These are signs, again, that lead to his victory over sin and death. He's your only hope. Come to him, and your soul shall be saved. How do I do that? Cry out to him. Repentantly. Cry and ask. Beg, plead for what you need to believe. Only he can give it to you. And the Bible says you'll be saved. From what? The wrath due to you. For you to be baptized with his judgment. Christ took it all. Come to him and you'll be saved. Spared. Amen? He's the proof. It's right here. So that's the unbeliever. For the believer. To close. Jesus. The one who conquered Satan, sin, and death. Where do you want to turn when you're tempted? Don't turn inwardly. (laughs) Turn to Christ. Okay, so let's go back to Ephesians, and we'll close with this. I read from it earlier. 
Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, church of Ephesus, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the great working of his might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who who fills all and all. That is to say, beloved, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. The same spirit that drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted now lives in you. The same spirit that enabled him to conquer Satan and win the battle is in you. And he loves you and he cares for you. And he will enable you to overcome temptation. So just do like Martin Luther did. Listen to this. Martin Luther, when he was asked how he defeated Satan, once said, you know, Satan comes and he knocks on the door of our hearts and he says, who lives here? And Jesus goes to the door and he says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he no longer lives here. I live here. And then he slams the door shut. (laughs) Same is true for you. So our substitute, our mediator, our king has gone to war against Satan and has emerged victoriously. Amen? He is the victor. And it is with him, Christian, that you are in union with now and forevermore. Find your rest and find your power and his grace in that union. Amen? May the Lord bless his word to your hearts.